I would tell 25-year-old Anoop, think deeply about your purpose, because now that I'm older, I feel that it defines me. You know, what I'm doing is defining me. I, and I think I, I kind of looked at profiles and companies and income levels and those kind of things that sort of targeted. And I think that those things seem to be um, a distraction because they're more a consequence of what you're doing and how you're doing it. Hello and welcome to the Nails and Hammers podcast. Our guest for today is Anup Akihal, who is the co-founder and CEO of a rural logistics startup called Logistimo. We talked about Anup's exciting journey from West Virginia to Bangalore and deep dived into how he started Logistimo, challenges he faced, what culture means for him and how he stays at the top of his game. I hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed talking to Anup. Hi Anup, welcome to the Nails and Hammers podcast. Hi Kushal, thank you for having me. So I want to start from the very beginning. Can you share with us a bit about where did you grow up and where all did you study? I grew up in a small college town in West Virginia, uh, where my dad was a professor at the local university. And it was a wonderful, nurturing environment. I left to go to my undergrad at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, Maryland, at you know in the in the early 1990s, and after that I did a, a few jobs, surfed some couches in Washington D.C., and uh, and then ultimately found my way into the SAP Enterprise Resource Planning Software domain, which was growing really fast in the 90s. And uh, that led me to work uh, in California and, and throughout the Midwest, traveling throughout the Midwest, which is a really great experience. And I, I think I saw more of my country working and traveling and, in those times. More than a decade of doing that, I went back to school because I felt I needed a sort of a theoretical foundation for some of the problems that I've been working on when I was working in the SAP space. I was really, I'd really sort of found a niche in sort of the inventory, warehousing, and order management type of areas. And it became pretty hardcore in the logistics space. So then I sort of leveraged that experience and ended up going to MIT for uh, a short master's degree in supply chain management. And then after that, I worked with the United States Army as a civilian contractor through Northrop Grumman to implement field tactical logistics systems in the military theater. And yeah. Mm-hmm. You spent most of your life in the U.S. What made you go to India? It's a really good question, actually. Well, my folks, my parents, retired around 2010, about a decade ago. And uh, they wanted to be very close to their siblings. And they thought retired life might be pretty good there. And so they relocated to Bangalore and a small town called Dadwar in Karnataka. And uh, so they were there. My brother had actually gone back to India five years before that. And he had come to India out of just a real genuine interest in, in learning and experiencing, you know, farming and 
uh, and so on. I think uh, he took that leap earlier. And uh, it was around that time when I was looking at starting an enterprise around what I had learned and the opportunities that I was seeing, you know, at the time, just to give you an idea at that time, Amazon first started offering a cloud service, you know, around 2006, you know, around the same time, there was a huge buzz around mobile devices being in the hands of everyone uh, in the emerging markets. And so it was a real interesting opportunity because the work that I was doing with the United States Army, you know, solving problems for soldiers, they had a lot of the same problems. So disconnected systems where, you know, if a sandstorm might blow over and you could be disconnected, a soldier would be disconnected from SATCOM. And similarly, you had problems with you know, no kerosene in the, in the cell tower, you know, and people were just, dis- or no recharge in the SIM card. So disconnected architectures, um, some of the same visibility, availability of data was difficult back then. And so there were a lot of similarities and I saw it as an opportunity to model and map some of the sort of sophisticated things that we had been working on into commercial spaces. So you have mobile device, so you have, you know, you have SATCOM and big ERP systems working in clusters and you have heavy devices in the field. And instead now you could model and map it to mobile phones and cloud service offerings. Mm-hmm. And so I was excited by that, especially because the problems were very similar. And so given the opportunity, given that my brother and my parents were all there, it really wasn't a difficult, difficult leap. And, uh, and also keep in mind back then, I mean, India looked like a greenfield opportunity to make something great happen. And it turned out to be true. So that's really what made me, you know, go back to India. Mm-hmm. How difficult was it to adjust in India? Uh, did India accept you? If you mean like the people, yeah, I think there was a general acceptance of, I mean, I felt accepted. I think there was always a good opportunity for any foreigner, really, especially those of Indian origin, especially in Bangalore. It's not too insular. It's pretty international. There are a lot of corporates who set up headquarters there. There were a lot of people looking for other people when I went there. (laughs) And and sure, I might have been the token American in a number of circles, but but yeah, it was very accepting. Mm-hmm. Did you have to learn local languages? I grew up knowing uh, my Americanized version of Kannada because unlike a lot of the folks here who, who had Indian origin folks who came to the United States, we went to India a lot. You know, my dad came from a very small village, you know, very poor. And, um, and there were, he, was a, he was a major, he was sort of the patriarch. Uh, he became a patriarch of family. And, and there was a genuine sense of closeness to both sides of our family. And so we would go back frequently. I mean, and so language was not so much a problem, although my accent was always hilarious to everyone. But actually that made more friends. And, you know, I can't tell you the number of 
auto wallas and taxi drivers who just wanted to hear me talk because it just tickled them so much. Oh. Um, you know, I've had, I've had just people like say, just say anything and just enjoy it because of the accents being so bad, I guess. Oh. Mm -hmm. And by the way, English is, is, is dominant in increase and challenge it in Bangalore, but English is still quite dominant, I think. Mm -hmm. Did you learn a bit of Jugad while you were in India? I think Jugad is, it's a reality, it's innovation in a way, and that's a wonderful thing. I think thinking outside the box, as they say, is brilliant. Actually, the funny thing is, I ended up in the last several years, I ended up fighting Jugad in my organization and our processes so much because it became an obstacle to standardization and scale. And mm -hmm. Jugad was so prolific and it was quite a struggle. It was a multi-year struggle in our organization to defeat the default of Jugad. I still think there's a role for it. Lately, I, when I think of Jugad, I think about how, how to create systems that don't require it, you know? <laughs> You earlier mentioned about how your U.S. Army experience helped you start Logistimo. So what market research should entrepreneurs do before they start something? So my Army experience was super useful in coming up with an idea and realizing an opportunity. Okay. But the context of how people work together, you know, and the methods are going to be different. So I would say the market research that we began doing was really trying to identify, is there a problem? Is it appreciated by people? I mean, it, there are problems that, again, you know, in, in Bangalore, not just in Bangalore, but across Karnataka, for example, where we were working, there's a, a saying in Kannada that's self-adjust Māori, which means just adjust a little, you know, just adjust yourselves and everything will be all right. So there are an abundance of problems that folks just adjust to. And so if that's happening it's not that there's a problem that is important. It's that is it appreciated enough for folks to pay for it? And, uh, and then also, I think things that we might have done better looking back would be to really understand why the problems are not getting solved in the first place. Like, what are the conditions on the ground and why have they not led to solving this problem in the first place? And, uh, and it's always fraught with mistakes. I mean, I remember making some really innocent mistakes when doing market research you know so for example i remember we were trying to figure out transportation pricing for rural areas and very innocently talked to people and said you know and one of our questions i remember was how much should this cost to go do something like this if you really how much not realizing that negotiations had already begun even though we hadn't a product, <laughs> we hadn't uh, a service offering or anything like that yet. But we we got these answers, and we saw. So we started off our pricing at, at you know at a particular price point, and then realized that all the feedback we'd gotten was intentionally low because those same folks ended up reselling our services for a higher margin than we were making. <laughs> You know, we were selling a, a, a delivery, you know, from point A to point B for 10 rupees and they will happily accept it, but then they were passing on that 
fee to their customers for 25 rupees. And so uh, I think when we did market research, I think you have to go with a lot more awareness of how sharp and uh, industrious folks can be and how they view things. You know, when we, we view it as research and we're just talking and we didn't know that. So these are the kinds of things that we ran into a couple of times. Of course, all those kinds of things are, you can overcome those things. So uh, what different uh, business model pivots did you make over the years? Truly none. We had envisioned SaaS as a model, a business model from the beginning. And uh, we've stuck to it. Although for a long time, we also diluted our offerings because I think segments of our market, especially public agencies like the UN, they really wanted to optimize their procurement activities. And so they always looked for turnkey solutions. And so the development industry sort of blindly follows a consulting model. So what we did is we started to dilute our service offerings beyond hosted services and and instead we started offering assistance consulting if you will to mm-hmm. implement these systems and that started a slippery that started us on a slippery slope mm-hmm. and then not so long ago we realized that we were just enabling these large agencies not to adapt so i think the lesson for us is that when you bring like a novel technology or intervention that sometimes it's better to stand firm than to simply adjust to the market demand. Because if the demand is really, truly high enough, then the market itself will adapt. And we've seen now evidence of that. And so I think, although we didn't pivot, I think the firmness of our model and our adherence to it, um, I think suffered uh, somewhat over the years coming from a position of relative weakness, I guess. It would have been different, I think, had we been venture-backed in the early years, which we were not. And uh, finally, we became venture-backed, but that too at a a small scale, I mean, you know, seed level type of investments. Mm -hmm. So I think that there is something for having enough in in the fuel tank to stand firm but uh, but yeah, I don't think we w- I would call it a pivot per se. Mm-hmm. So what does culture mean for you and how did you hire in the early days? Well, I think culture, I don't know if I can define it, but I vaguely look at it as the tendency, the baseline, the way in which we expect one another to behave on an organization or in a in a in a space we um and when we're talking how did we build culture actually something we talked about a lot in fact especially Mm -hmm. with respect to hiring we we again like i said we didn't start off with a lot of capital so like unlike Mm -hmm. a lot of startups that you read about today we didn't raise the money first and then go out and uh take the risk you know it was a, you know, the business model, model challenges at the time didn't appear appropriate, you know, for the, for the, you know, that type of problem. Mm-hmm. So it, we didn't look attractive, I think, to VCs. So 
we truly bootstrapped, you know, with my personal savings and, you know, my dad threw in quite a lot as well, simply because he wanted to support our explorations. But, you know, given the kinds of salaries that software engineers uh, command and the type of attrition rates that we knew about and continue to see in Bangalore, we really had to hire carefully where the mission fit was very strong. So we, we wanted to get the sense from someone that they really cared about the problem that problems that we were trying to solve and the mission that we were on. We felt like that would make them more sticky, if you will, and less vulnerable to jumping ship. And so culture for us really meant like alignment on the mission. And I'm happy to say that, I mean, and by the way, it was something that we relaxed later on when we were growing very, very fast. I and mean, we, yeah. at one point in time, we were like 75 employees. And in that, you know, from employee number 40 onwards, mm-hmm. it was such a rush kind of a thing in the scale up that mm-hmm. we relaxed the culture fit and the mission fit a bit because it really took longer. I mean, when you're really trying to find uh, someone who cares about the same things that you care about, brings the same sim- similar type of values, uh, and would be a great person to work on the team with lower risk of attrition, then you know it takes longer. But we didn't have that time, and so we relaxed those things. And I can tell you that the initial hires that we found, the people with the mission fit are still with us, whereas a lot of the people at those scale-up days are not. So I do think it's true that if you find someone who cares about the same problems and maybe shares a worldview uh, sufficiently, that it's going to lead to a longer, more stable, fruitful relationship. And so I think that culture is super important. And, uh, and you really want the, their reason, their why of why they want to do this or why they want to work with you to really be beyond the the salary and compensation. And so, yeah, it's very clear. The best people, the most long lasting, greatest contributors really did come in the initial, you know, the first 15 employees really. And, uh, and of course, some part of that could be attributed to the fact that those first employees were the ones who have been there the longest. And so they had the greater share of shaping the organization themselves. And that might be a reinforcing feedback loop. Sure. But, but I do think that, People who cared about the problem have contributed the most unquestionably. So mm-hmm. I, we, we really weighed that heavily. And, uh, yep. and now, now in retrospect, I think we still do. Now we've gone back to that. Oh, that's actually really interesting. I mean, because sometimes people don't go back to, you know, uh, being very specific to hire and they, they just hire aggressively. So, so that's, that's a great point. So how different is logistics for rural India? Is, uh, is it still a blue ocean? Well, I think if you compare it to the, you know, the tier one, tier two cities, I think there's a fundamental challenge of demand density. Mm-hmm. So it simply costs more to deliver to a widespread market, geographically broad market than a concentrated one. Right. I mean, that rural is, I think, for that reason, not generally served. You know, you have the sort of this business horizon that companies have 
uh, told us about. And I'm talking about the the old school corporates, the, the brands that everyone in India has grown up, uh, you know, geographical horizon into the hinterland, that beyond which the cost of fuel tends to outweigh any potential profit one might find to it, you know, might expect to find. Oh. And so I think that the dynamics of rural India have, uh, have been shaped by this, where rural consumers travel to a district town, a market town, if you will, to purchase, you know, what they want and then find their way back. And deliveries were typically absent. I mean, unless it was for construction and even in those kind of things, even then there would be a lot of jugad uh, <laughs> to, to get deliveries to happen. And that was the norm for a long time. I think still, if you talk about India as a whole, it's still the norm. But I think that that demand density problem has now, is now being addressed in certain ways. And the other obstacle, I think, in rural India for logistics was the baseline was highly informal. And uh, you, what you would have are folks from villages who would go to the market towns, position themselves, you know, on a, on a side street amongst all their peers, amongst all other logistics and, you know, transport providers. You know how it is, you, you know, when you go to a street corner and they're like five rickshawalas on the corner and sort of there's an alpha amongst them and that alpha will basically tell you who's going to help you out and yeah. might even negotiate the prices on behalf of the group. That's sort of how transport to rural areas looked like. And so this informality obviously didn't help anybody, in, including the, the folks uh, who are the service providers. And so, you know, in, in rural India, it's going to be harder because you have to achieve closed loops. In other words, those same drivers need to be able to get back home to where they live so they can eat dinner at a reasonable hour and sleep enough so that they can work again the next morning. And it's harder to do that in a rural setting than in an urban setting, right? Mm -hmm. um, and the distances are radically different. So I also think that in rural, probably lending to the economic demographic, price sensitivity is also very high. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's a difference. Um, and of course, all of these are things that can be addressed. There's no fundamental inefficient, I mean, sort no fundamental, you know, prohibitive condition in rural that doesn't let it happen. It's just a matter of addressing those challenges one by one and, and finding a way to, to make it work for everyone holistically. So how do you make uh, customers out of non-customers? That's a good question. And I wish I knew the answer better. <laughs> <laughs> I do think that you got to listen to your customers or your, or your target customers. A lot of the models that we've seen are, are push models where, you know, but I think that with us, we've had to listen to problems and really understand the problems yep. and then understand what do we offer that can address that. You need to obviously have some awareness from the market, from those customers about what 
a, a you know a future scenario could look like so that they might find interest in trying it out and i think the other thing is you need a lot of patience uh, there's been you know it's it's a very slow cycle in rural india to change behaviors and it's not because they're not agile or anything it's just that you know they are accustomed to seeing a lot of scams they are accustomed to seeing a new scheme and sometimes that scheme is not even just from other people sometimes it could be companies it could be governments it could be anything i remember in the early days you know just making a visit to villages and immediately before a word is spoken you know folks telling us we don't want any condoms oh. you know you know it's it's that's how jaded a lot of villagers are about outsiders mm -hmm. kind of coming in and offering services or products or or even opportunities but there are are always people who are there to listen and you have generally uh younger po younger folks who can who can kind of uh see the future a little bit better mm -hmm. and are more comfortable with the change more accustomed to dealing with it i think uh you know that's one strategy that we've worked out which is to find uh, folks who are more amenable to it to understand it and then once again in rural India word of mouth is a huge factor and so you really kind of if you can convince some people even if not directly your customer mm -hmm. it begins to influence over time how do you scale when markets that you work in are so fragmented well I would say obviously technology has been a terrific help right but let's get beyond that for a moment I really think that the techn we've had technology in the, you know to aggregate demand and to and to you know bring lots of people together and work efficiently and that obviously helps with scale mm -hmm. and managing scale but actually to get there in the first place i think it's really word of mouth that's based on trust in the service basically you know you have to build a reputation you have to earn trust and specifically around like you know your service quality like is your offering reliably available to them when they need it uh is it priced rationally is it timely is it predictable and if mistakes happen will we fix it you know and i think that the scale that you know and it's not really logistimo scale so much as much as our sister organization tusker that sort of spun off last year yep. that does rural transport but um you know they've been scaling at a remarkable rate and it's really truly around word of mouth growth and um so the social network is important mm -hmm. uh but i don't think you can also solely build it online i think the word of mouth is really spreading from you know customer to customer uh an observer to observer and i think that's where more people are willing to take a jump where they see some social proof you know if someone else that they respect is going for it then they're far more likely to go for it too mm -hmm. and this is not my concept or idea i mean i think nobel laureates you know abhijit banerji and esther duflo have, all, have written about this kind of thing where you know mm -hmm. these alpha nodes in the network are yeah. are you know if they're the if if the offering comes through them it's much more highly adopted you know the uptake is much higher like multiples 
So this is just like the influencer model, but it is much more offline. Yeah, an offline influencer model. Mm-hmm. So now I want to shift focus to know more about Anup as a person. So what does founder mentality mean for you and how did you develop it? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's inherent, like mm-hmm. a parent mentality. You know, I don't know if you develop it. I think it is what it is. If you founded something, just like if you're a parent, I think there's an attachment. There's skin in the game. And obviously to different degrees. I mean, you can found something where, you know, venture capital came in immediately or even beforehand. And I think that, that that's a different degree of skin in the game mm-hmm. than bootstrapping. But, but I think founder mentality is both, you know, has its good and bad. You know, it, it, obviously it leads to great commitment, extremely hard work uh, to do something. You feel like it reflects on you as a person a lot. Sometimes the, the line between the organization and yourself gets blurred. And uh, that can be good and bad. I think knowing, knowing when to call it quits might be uh, compromised if you have a very strong founder mentality. And maybe that's a good thing too. So it is what it is, but uh, I think it's inherent. And I don't know if I developed it. I, don't, I can't really look back and point to anything that I think that developed my founder mentality, so to say. What do you do to unwind? Yeah, great question. I try to spend a lot of time with my family these days. I've been working nights and days, and even though I'm working out of the home, I really should spend more time. So I've got a six-year-old, and my wife and I, we all love board games, card games. Lego is a big deal in our house. Puzzles are a big deal. And uh, and that's when we're indoors. I guess I'm thinking a lot about the, the, the lockdown days, but then you know, now that things are loosening up, I think we like to go outdoors, cycling and uh, hiking. I guess when you live in the Pacific Northwest, yep. uh, you have an abundance of opportunities to be immersed in nature and, and experience amazing vistas. And I think that is, that's, that's more than unwinding. It's inspiring. And uh, I think uh, it's energizing. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, those are kind of some of the things that we're doing these days. How do you stay at the top of your game? <laughs> I don't know that I am on top of my game, but I can say that if, if I look at everyone's advice, it's to sleep as much as possible because that's the rarest of commodities at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, so I try to sleep so I have a clear head when I'm working and, and I don't make everyone feel sorry for me because that's something that a lot of my employees sometimes do. They're like, oh, you know, let's not take this meeting now. You've been awake too long. Just go to sleep. We'll talk about it tomorrow. So, you know, I think if, if I if I sort out the sleep problem, I'll uh, it'll fix a, a number of things around me. If if not an entrepreneur, what would you have been? You know, I think I would have been a professor like my dad. What's your best travel story? I don't know that I have one. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are lots to choose from. You know. I've been in Rajasthan traveling where an entire school full of children saw us walking by and the teachers all dismissed school so that they can interact with us and teach us 
and teach us about indigo dyeing. Okay. That was an amazing experience. I've seen like uh, doing uh, sort of international development work in South Sudan. We've had a colleague taken hostage and, uh, and experiencing the fight or the attack and uh, getting involved, being a, you know, of my complexion in South, mm-hmm. by the way, this is in South Sudan, like just a few months, about six, yep. seven months after independence. So, I mean, tension was a little high and sort of jumping in there to protect a colleague and this, the, just the surrealness of it was incredible, you know, yep. and, uh, but uh, everything turned out okay. And, oh, nice. Uh, I think there are a number of stories. I don't know which one to choose from. And lastly, what advice would you give to a 25-year-old Anup? That's a really good one. I think I would tell 25-year-old Anup to really think deeply about your purpose. Because now that I'm older, I feel that it defines me. You know, what I'm doing is defining me. And I think I, I kind of looked at profiles and companies and income levels and those kind of things that sort of targeted. And I think that those things seem to be um, a distraction because they're more a consequence of what you're doing and how you're doing it. I think I probably would tell myself to explore more earlier in my career than I did. I mean, I tried to leverage my experience for more money, better sort of freedom and um, if you will, rank in an organization. I wanted to grow in an organization and I wanted to earn enough to have this, you know, lifestyle that you would yeah. imagine. But I didn't get far thinking like that. I mean, sure, I did. I was able to get some of those things, but it didn't satisfy in the end. I think trying to build something myself was something that didn't occur to me until my 30s. I know a lot of young people are different now and they're building stuff you know, before they're out of high school. But for me, it was about, I, I was conditioned, I think, maybe it was a result of the economy at the time, that mm-hmm. when you graduate, you join something, you know, and building something of your own, starting a movement, starting a business, anything like that seemed a little further fetched. And so maybe it was a timing thing, but I think I would try to tell myself to build something because I think a lot of maturity comes from that. Mm-hmm. And a lot of reckoning comes from that. I think also perhaps I would have tried to start a family sooner because I really, really cherished my time with my wife and my kid. And it just feels so fleeting and rare these days that, uh, you know, I mean, I would like to be younger in a way. Uh, so I have more time, but uh, yeah, that's basically how I looked at it. You know, when, when I'm thinking about how to talk mm-hmm. to my previous self, <laughs> That's a great wrap up to our conversation. And before we end, uh, we'll, we'll have a quick rapid fire round. Um, sure. So which, which book are you reading right now? I'm embarrassed to admit that I do not have that luxury right now. I wish I could spend time reading and I don't. I'm reading legal paperwork and oh. proposal drafts and, and, and children's books. I'm reading a lot of children's books with my kid. But, but I have not read anything recently. I tend, to, I tend to go for some heady, you know, my dad being an economist, I think I, uh, I always read kind of books that he has left around. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think recently, I think I read Raghuram Rajan. 
and I read uh, Thomas Piketty. Mm-hmm. Um, not the whole book, yeah. honestly. What are your top three favorite apps? Oh, that's a cool question. I love Shazam. Oh. And I don't know if you know what that is, but it can listen to a song and then tell you exactly what that song is, yeah. you know, when it's playing on the radio or, or outside or something. Mm-hmm. I just think it's so cool and we use it all the time. I think Google Maps is like the ultimate app. I think it's amazing. It's amazing and uh, unparalleled in its impact to our lives. And mm-hmm. uh, so Google Maps has got to be one of them. And I, we use it all the time. And then lastly, I would say the camera because we, we use cameras to communicate everything now Mm -hmm. Uh, between friends, you know, everything we just, we're snapping pictures all the time. It's just so useful. If you had uh, $1 million to invest, where would you do so except logistic? I would personally love to finance a somewhat local experiment of liquid democracy. And if you don't know what that is, I highly recommend looking it up, but it's, it's just a different model of how we might vote and participate in governance. Mm -hmm. Which household activity did you pick up during lockdown? Well, I was already working out of the home during, you know, before the lockdown. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, given how much the pandemic actually increased my workload, uh, I'm embarrassed to say I've actually dropped my household responsibilities a bit. You know, however, I have been doing a ton of dishes because our washer broke and we didn't want to have a technician come in and, you know, several times to figure it out and so on. So Mm -hmm. I'm just doing a lot of dishes when I'm trying to help out. Mm -hmm. And lastly, uh, whom would you love to have on the Logistimo board? That's a really hard question. I'd like to give you two answers. Uh, On the one hand, fresh eyes, fresh perspectives, from the from a strongly tech community, I would go with Paul Graham. Yep. Um, and if uh, and for for more of a seasoned perspective and how to build a business in the space where we're currently working, mm-hmm. I would go with Joel Lamstein uh, from mm-hmm. JSI. That was a great conversation, Anup. And thank you for being a guest on the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I did, Kushal. Thank you so much for having me on. I enjoyed it. There were great questions and I love talking to you.